Well, hello. Welcome back to the Utility Podcast. Had a little bit of a break in January. Well, I didn't really have a break because I've been like going around like I'm on a hamster wheel. But um, I have had a little break from publishing because I wanted to get everything ready for February. I wasn't doing dry January. I wasn't being a vegan. I didn't make any New Year's resolutions. But I have managed to walk to the wrong end of a car park as I'm just leaving the cool workspace that I've been working in. Anyway, this podcast series is all about alternative parenting. And it's something that I've been working on for a while to give you an insight into what's involved if it's basically gonna take three to make your baby. What you're gonna hear is conversations with a brilliant counsellor who herself was adopted. She then adopted her second child after dealing with secondary infertility. You'll hear from a solo mum who decided to have a baby on her own and her experience of becoming a solo mum. She's someone that I've spoken to before, so I'll link to that episode about the whole decision to be a solo mum. But I wanted to catch up with her almost a year into her journey of being a solo mum to really hear what it's like. Things that you might not have thought about. Obvious things, less obvious things. You'll hear from a lady who's got an amazing organisation, which is like a global egg bank, and one of her donors. You'll also hear from a lawyer talking about all the things you need to consider when you are thinking about using a donor, adopting, co-parenting, using a surrogate, and the idea that thinking about the legal side of things as far as consent and issues if you're going abroad early on can hopefully help you kind of foresee any potential problems and you kind of got everything covered or at least you know who you can talk to rather than something going wrong. I'm not saying that it will, but if it does, knowing who you can talk to. You'll also hear from a guy who's a sperm donor and how he's working. He's in Australia. He's got quite a fascinating approach to what he does. And with him, so funny, a guy just walked past me as I was saying the word sperm donor. You'll also hear from uh, a lady who he's donated to. Didn't expect that when we had the conversation. They were in an Airbnb in Australia. I probably sound a bit bewildered in the conversation, but you can be the judge of that when we get to it. And you'll be hearing from a lovely lady called Jo, who had a baby with her partner, Jane. And she talks about what went wrong in her scenario to again, hopefully give you that insight as to um, what could go wrong, knowing the questions to ask, which is, it's always fun walking past the big factory when you're trying to record a podcast intro. What I'm hoping to achieve from this podcast series is just to give you all sorts to think about, all sorts to consider, and then you can ask more questions. I can help direct you to other podcast episodes that might be of relevance. But hopefully what it will do is help answer some of your questions, help steer you towards some people that can help you, and um, help you realise that, you know, this is been done before people have gone there already and that's why this community is here for you so before we crack on delighted to share my new sponsors for 2019 and here's a bit of info about them and they're amazing for supporting the fertility podcast because they help make it happen 
This podcast is sponsored by International Andrology, who specialise in diagnosing and treating male infertility. Around 50% of infertility issues are male factor, and all too often, men aren't even evaluated at the start of a fertility journey, which might result in unnecessary treatments, costs, and disappointment. International Andrology is one of the few specialist clinics in the UK, offering a holistic approach to increase your chances to conceive naturally or via the IVF route. As well as treating the underlying causes of male infertility, their doctors have some of the highest success rates in microsurgical sperm retrieval. So, if you're looking for a true specialist to assist you on your fertility journey, visit london-andrology.co.uk today and do mention the Fertility Podcast. Bud Fertility Supplements have been created to support you in your pursuit of parenthood. Whether you're just starting out or have been trying to conceive for a while, Bud's innovative vegan formulas contain adaptogens, minerals and vitamins proven to support vital aspects of reproductive health and function. Go to littlebud.com and use the code FP20 to receive 20% off your order. So go forth and multiply. Yes, amazing to have you guys on board. Right. If you want to get in touch with me, do follow me on my socials. You can do at Fertility Poddy on Instagram, on Twitter. The Fertility Podcast has a page on Facebook and I have a closed Facebook group called Talk Fertility, which is such a lovely community. I've got some of my former guests who are experts in their own fields as admin. So it's not just me trying to field your questions with previous podcast episodes that could help, but they're there to get involved and everybody is just being amazing we're doing more facebook lives in there so if you'd like to get involved it'd be lovely to have you there if you get the chance to rate and review this podcast it would be amazing it's ace to know what you think but it also tells other people that this is worth their ear holes and stay till the end i'll give you the show notes of how you can find out more about Jana. and here she is now so i'm now delighted to welcome Jana rutno who is a fertility counselor she's also an author of the book three makes baby how to parent your donor conceived child and as part of this alternative parenting series that i'm sharing with you i was really interested in talking with Jana not just about her own experience but about the book and and the work that she does so welcome to the podcast Jana. thank you so much I'm really glad to be here. Well, I love that I found you. I think we connected on Instagram, but there's so many different kind of parts of what you do and your story that are so relevant to what I'm trying to convey with this series. First of all, um, let's talk a bit about you before we talk about your book and, and the work that you do, because your own kind of journey, your background is also connected into what you're doing now, isn't it? Just tell me a bit about your own upbringing. Yeah, so my husband and I got pregnant um, in 2000 with our first child pretty easily had an easy pregnancy but couldn't get pregnant again to our surprise Um, and as you know that's secondary infertility so after years of of no success we decided to adopt and we were always open to adoption Um, I myself was adopted at six weeks old as a baby and I have a twin brother so we were both adopted into the same family so we were open to it and so we started that uh, process of adoption and adopted our daughter from china in 2005 actually and uh, after that i just i really was having gone through infertility myself for so many years i felt called to really help other women and really was drawn to the field and was uh, basically counseling other couples going through the adoption process at first so when we first returned with our own daughter and through our own adoption process we I was counseling others and then switched over to begin counseling people that were 
doing other choices, that we're making other choices. You know, maybe adoption didn't work out. I remember one couple, young couple, they couldn't have their own children and um, they had two adoptions fall through. And so I just remember how heartbroken they were that two babies had been taken back from them and just the losses that they felt and the grief they felt and they just couldn't tolerate another loss. And so they were looking at another option to have a baby because the adoptions didn't work out for them. Had your adoption experience with your daughter been relatively straightforward? So it took two years, right? And which was a long time. And um, we did have some hiccups. We had some. We had a you know some paperwork fall through at the last minute. We weren't sure if they lost our paperwork. This was after waiting two years. It just kind of got a little bit twisted at the end, but it worked out. We ended up having to travel alone instead of traveling in a group. And so there were just some little, there was some definitely some trouble at the end after the long waiting process that made it even more difficult. But we, it ended up being exactly what was right for us. And, and Jade, our daughter is, is the one that was definitely meant for us. And so, yeah. And from your own upbringing, you talked about you and your brother being adopted. Did that help you get your head around that relationship that you'd potentially have with adopting a child? That there wouldn't be, as I hear, some of the fears and concerns of that bond if you are going to go down the adoption route. And you'd obviously experienced it firsthand with the relationship you had with your parents. Yes, so my parents did have a biological child after my brother, my twin brother and I, four years later, my oh, mom wow. was able to, to her surprise, to have yeah, a baby bet. after multiple miscarriages. So I also have a little brother who is I'm not biologically related to. And so, yeah, my whole life has been relating to family who I don't have genetic ties to, with the exception of my twin brother. Um, but we're a family and, and that's all I've ever known, for sure. And that's what I found really fascinating about talking to you because you've lived through this experience firsthand as well as uh, from your own direct family as well as then the family you've, you've gone on to, to have of your own. For sure, because you know the, it, the story really for me repeated itself as a parent. So I, I was an adoptee as a child and now I'm an adoptive parent. So I really get to see it from both sides, how I experienced growing up and being raised in an adoptive family or a family that's not genetically related fully and then now being the parent of a child who I'm not genetically related to and what that feels like and what that is like and the challenges of that. So I definitely write from a personal experience as well as professional because I've worked with a lot of couples that are have lots of different stories that are different than mine as well. So. And at what point did you think, right, there's a book in, in, in this experience <laughs> that I'm, this journey that I'm on? Oh my goodness. I think... I think I knew honestly when I was 20 years old and I was flying on an airplane to meet my birth parents for the first time, to meet my birth father. And I, you know, I, I was thinking back at that time to this chance meeting back to another airplane ride with when I was sitting next to a man. I was on my way to New York City for the first time by myself. And I was sitting next to a very nervous older man and he was scribbling in a, a notepad. And he said, uh, I'm a psychologist. And I'm on my way to meet my birth mother for the very first time in New York City. And she's no an way. older Italian woman and she's, on, she's dying. And I remember at the time I was 20 and thinking, or I was 18. And I remember thinking, wow, what, is, what are the chances that I'm sitting next to this, this doctor? And he said, if you ever want to meet your birth family, call me and I'll help you. And then I knew at that moment, I knew something pretty special was happening. And I had, 
I had a story to share and and I just it would be you know 15 years later um, or longer you know 20 years later before I would meet my birth mother and he was the liaison for us so he was the first person to call my birth father on the phone and connect us shortly after that I began writing the book wow okay because part of the conversation that you have in your book and it's so prominent in the work that you do is about the telling of Mm -hmm. uh, a child's story and obviously you've gone through that experience what age did your parents tell you about your background so I always knew they started talking about it when I was a baby I assume Um, my mom said that she would introduce us back then as um, you know these are my adopted children. We don't really do that anymore, but back in the day, that's how they introduced, um, that's how they recommended that you introduce your children. And so my parents talked about it with me from the very beginning, so I have no actual memory of finding out. I just right. always knew that was my story. Yeah. Because, because you talk about in your book, which we'll move on to, um, you talk about the five main issues that you help people with. And obviously the child's well-being is a huge part of the consideration here, whether the child has been adopted or donor conceived. You've mm-hmm. described kind of the perfect scenario, okay, a, a bit old fashioned in the way that your parents spoke about it, but the fact that there wasn't this big shock. Um, and I remember I had a friend at school when I was probably about seven years old I said to her and this is the most you know ridiculous naive thing but I said to my friend why have you got blue eyes and your sister's got brown eyes and she said to me because I'm adopted and I went oh right fine but the fact that I even asked that question I mean that shows the innocence of my question and her response was so innocent but she'd obviously Mm -hmm. been told she was in a family where the sister she was talking about was the biological child of her parents and her and her Mm -hmm. older brother were both adopted Um, and I don't think it was something that was kept from them. I think they were very comfortable with it, which was, you know, and and the way that she talked about it and the way that we all knew about it, it it wasn't a thing at all. But that's Mm -hmm. not always the case, is it? No, it's not. And in fact, that changed. Um, You know, I don't know exactly the time frame that began to change, but adoption used to be a secret as well. Um, Families were told to keep adoption a secret. And then that changed. They realized that wasn't helpful that children needed to know and understand their genetic differences. And so what, you know, within the donor conception um, world, so to speak, um, they it began under the same, sort of under the same theme of this secret, um, of this, with the secrecy. And so early on when donation conception was first happening, it was done in doctor's offices and it was very secret. And it was, um, you know, and sometimes even the, the earliest cases even the women didn't know and so because it started with that and has that history we're still overcoming that um, and it's getting much more um, people are becoming much more open and comfortable with talking about it especially in the last I've noticed in the last five years but there's still that idea that we need to keep it a secret and families feel with that secret they feel this sense of shame about their family and their family story. And so that's the reason I wanted to write this book is I really wanted to help families to not to be able to let go of that shame and not feel that and not then pass that on to their children, but to have a sense of comfort, comfort and confidence about their family and their family story. 
Because in that first issue, that the child's well-being, talking about how the child will feel, haven't there been studies showing that children that have kind of been brought up with their story are much better placed than those who have it hidden from them and maybe get that shock telling? Yes, and so when kids find out earlier, they really accept the information more effortlessly than if they find out later in life. Mm. For whatever reason, children are just able to you know, absorb information and accept it as truth and they're comfortable with it. They take their cues from their parents. If their parents are comfortable with it, they're comfortable with it too. That's not to say they don't have challenges or they won't have challenges along the way. Sure. Um, and I do speak to those challenges in the book, but that's those are just like any life challenges, things that we can we can handle and we can address. And as a parent, we can help guide them through that. So. And we touched on this, um, the second point of, of your, your five, this parent legitimacy uh, you've, you've demonstrated from your own experience about the connection. But it is a concern, isn't it, whether it's, again, an adopted child or donor-conceived child, that the parent might not feel there is that connection. Yes, and so there's a, you know, the idea that a lot of people have only experienced family as genetic family. Yeah. And so to them, family means biology. And so what we do is just kind of have to you know, redefine that in a way for people and say, you know, family is so much more. It's really a bond. It's shared time. It's a bond. It's an attachment to people that you spend time with. And so that really can help parents to feel more at ease that, that the family life is so much more than just genetics. And it's just because a lot of times they just haven't experienced that. Now, there, that's not to say that there aren't some families that have, you know, um, are uncomfortable with genetic differences you know that can happen as well so you know that's what I move on and talk about those family and cultural differences and and what do you do if if your family is just against you um, having a child that's not part of the family um, family tree you know so to speak yeah so well let's talk more about that because obviously if your family is close and you want them to be a part of this exciting new um, part, this exciting new chapter that you're going through, you you want everybody to experience the joy that you are. And if you're, um, you know, if you've been trying for a long time and you've been wanting to give your parents, grandchildren, all, all mm-hmm. of those things that come with a, a natural route to becoming a parent, you, you want to share those. And so if people are struck with barriers how how do you kind of I mean how do you start to help them overcome that and help help their family accept the situation yeah and so a lot of times what happens is it kind of redefines your relationships and families so you know if if a family member a a mother or father is just adamantly against this way of building your family and you know this is your only way to be a parent you know this is where I will talk about setting boundaries really and and being able to have that comfort level and make you can make this decision and you can be different from your family and families can recover from it and they can go on to to become more accepting over time i've seen i've seen so many families change that they started out against it and then over time they they changed they softened they they were able to accept um, the differences and, and really embrace a new definition of family and so I say give it time and I, I say you know know that that you you have boundaries there and you have the right to make decisions for growing your family that may not be what your parents or or your family support um, if it's a cultural difference you know sometimes that's a little bit more difficult to deal with so I've had clients that fly in from Brazil 
and or other countries that where it is you know Peru it's absolutely unacceptable to be you know to have a child this way and so they tell me there is no way we can talk about this this absolutely has to be a secret and so you know that you know obviously I still educate them and tell them the same things I would tell anyone else but I do understand that some cultures just it's very very difficult um, to have this family difference and so you know there's gonna be obstacles but um, there are definitely ways to to work through it when there is the more extreme example I've just said is that more often than not due to the family's concern of what other people would think do you think sometimes it yeah sometimes it is yeah sometimes it is um and so that's that social differences that um that really can come up um, when people are afraid of being different or bringing attention to it you know if my child looks different than me how will i answer those questions when they say you know where did her red hair come from you know how will i say what how will i answer that you know, will I, will I basically have to be dishonest and say, you know, make something up or will I be able to be honest? And, you know, so that can be difficult too, is how do we, how do we work this socially? And if we feel different from other families, is that something that we can feel comfortable with? Um, how do we explain this to other people? Um, and so, you know, that's definitely can be concerning for some people, for some families. Because I guess a part of it in that sense is that if, especially if you've had a challenging ride with your own family, to then have to constantly be talking about it to justify the red hair every time. It's a constant thing, isn't it? So what it kind is. of what kind of thing do you, I mean, do you tell people to be honest if, if outsiders are asking those questions or do you give them like little tools to, to, to come up with a creative answer? Yeah, so what you do is you get really creative and you get really <laughs> skilled at social interactions. Um, I tell them that, you know, it's really their right. There's a difference between privacy and secrecy. And we have the right to privacy. We have the right to not share information that's personal about us or our family with with someone if we don't want to. And then that's not secrecy. Secrecy is keeping information from people who really need to know. So Mm. keeping the secret from a child about their genetic makeup is is that's information they need to know for lots of reasons, Uh, for health reasons, for identity development. And so that's more what we would consider secret. But if someone asks you where her red hair came, it kind of depends on who it is. Is it an acquaintance? Is it a close family uh, member? Is it a, a stranger? You know. And so certainly with with strangers, I I tell people you don't have to share. Yeah. You know, with strangers, you can you know find ways to dodge that or distract them from the question or just. Everybody on. has myths about red hair, how it skips a generation, <laughs> yeah. and it's the dominant and the recessive. <laughs> it's hilarious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there you go. There's so there's always creative ways to to find answers that are not dishonest and not modeling shamefulness to your child. So let's say your child's just right there in the grocery cart with you, and they pick up on your sense of dodginess or in a, in a negative way or shame or embarrassment or I don't know how to discomfort you know being uncomfortable then that can be something if they see over and over and over they can kind of internalize that and so I do encourage parents to find and continue to develop that skill of interacting and find that right voice for them and for their yeah. family of how to communicate it with others. I do want to talk in a moment about the child's feelings more, but there's just one more point within your five main issues about does it really matter if we don't tell? And I know that you, in the book, have exercises. One of them is do you want to tell your child and you kind of challenge people to complete that exercise because Mm -hmm. it's almost easier, isn't it? It's like when there's something that you just can't deal with, it's like don't do anything about it, just avoid head in the sand type mentality. Is is that Mm -hmm. 
more often than not what people do or are, are we getting braver as society talks more about modern families and we 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 see more variety of in the way that we have families are we getting better at accepting that it it, it matters i think we're getting better i think it's very recent and i think that even if we look at studies just a couple of years ago most people still had not told their child by the time they were nine years old and so you know which is not necessarily a bad thing it's just uh there they took that time there they needed that time to get comfortable and they weren't sure how to do it and you know it's kind of like what how do we talk about this it's just easier not to talk about it until yeah. that point when you realize you do and then you're like uh-oh now it's kind of we're far down the line and now it's gotten even more uncomfortable to talk about it because we don't know how to bring it up and we don't know how our child's older now and they understand more so we don't really know how they're going to react so that can be pretty unnerving and so that's why I encourage just go ahead and start talking about it right away you know you don't have to talk it's not like you're talking about it a lot but you're just planting those seeds of the information so it's always kind of there it's that foundation just like I always knew your child will then just always know Mm. because telling a child later then leaves them feeling confused and betrayed and there's a real negative element to that and it's almost selfish from the parent they're protecting themselves not their child aren't they yes in a way and and they're maybe also dealing with unresolved grief unresolved emotions from the infertility um, feelings of being different feelings of isolation and feelings of you know um, lots of different emotions that have come up during the infertility process and so Telling a child later, uh, you know, so let's say around their teenage years, we do have studies that show that they can become very, they, they can feel betrayed. They can feel like a confusion, like who are, who are, who really am I? Um, and so, yeah, they can, there can definitely be more negative responses later in life if they, sh- you know, find out, um, especially if they find out from someone they didn't expect or from someone other than their parents or if they find out under a negative circumstance, say a divorce or you know some other kind of health crisis that now we need to know, um, that that's just a more stressful time to find that information out and it can just add more challenges in, you know, in whatever you're going through um, at that time because now you've got this whole issue of who am I? Why didn't you tell me? Why did you lie to me? I mean, that just would to be me? so awful, wouldn't it? It would be hard and I've, heard, I've talked to people that have experience that and just how confusing that is when they find out later and so you know sometimes they're still not even able to fully express it to their parents um, when they find out and they have to you know kind of do their own work in in working through some of those negative feelings the ones that can feel and and say I'm upset and this I feel betrayed to their parents are actually those are great situations because they can talk to their parents about it and their parents are open to hearing those negative feelings what I tell parents at that phase if your child, if you do tell your child when they're a teenager and they're just finding out, you know, expect this. Expect some shock and sadness and grief, and and it's okay. They may just not want to talk about it at all. So there's all the kinds of conflicting emotions that come with it, and so it's those mixed emotions, the ability to be able to tolerate that, that is really helpful in families um, that are genetically different. You know, genetic loss really is a core loss for some people, not all people. But for some people, that inability to have a genetic child, to pass on their legacy, to you know, to be immortalized, so to speak, is really a core loss. And so when we're dealing with core loss, grief almost always follows loss. It's certainly going to follow a, co- a core loss. People don't necessarily realize they're grieving. And I can't tell you the number of times I've had people come to my office and we talk it through and I say, this is grief. 
And they say, oh my gosh, you're right. Mm. This is grief. This makes sense. And it gives them permission to feel. Because up until this point, a lot of them feel like, this is hard. Why am I not tougher? Why can't, why is this so difficult for me to deal with? And so what I say is this is, you have experienced loss, not just one, but multiple losses. And when we have multiple losses that accumulate over time, as we do in the infertility journey with loss of pregnancy, loss of procedure, you know, the procedure failure, miscarriage, just the inability to get pregnant every month, um, that we have these losses that add up, they accumulate into what we call compounded grief. And so it's not simple grief, and no grief is simple, but for lack of a better way to say it, it is more complicated um, than, than just regular grief. And, and so when people are going through that, it's like you've got to allow the feelings to come through and to acknowledge what you've lost, to be able to let it go. And because if we hold on to what we wanted, then we, we tend to carry, you know, I say grief time travels through families because we tend to repress that grief, hold on to the dream that was broken, the dream we didn't get, and it comes out in negative ways, maybe through our parenting or maybe just through our anger and frustration. And so letting that process, acknowledging the, the loss and letting that process work through and knowing that's normal and a healthy way to move through it and giving people permission to do that. So that really can, can help just them to know that it's normal to feel that way. Sometimes they just feel like they're, I'm supposed to be happy. It can even happen after they have their baby home. I'm mm. supposed to be happy now. What happened? Why am I still upset? Why do I still feel sadness? And I, I will, you know, I will tell people this is normal. Grief will come and it will kind of, you know, there'll be layers and then you'll work through another layer and then maybe even a year later something will pop back up. I had a, a woman come back to me after her child was two. She was donor conceived. She had an adoption fall through as well. And uh, she came back to me because she felt like the adoption loss was actually interfering with her ability to parent her two-year-old. She loved her two-year-old. Wow. She was so okay. happy she had made the decision but that she was still feeling grief from losing that first baby that she needed to talk through. And I helped, we helped connect some dots and, and helped kind of talk, make some meaning through her, her process, and that really helped. Because there's such guilt, forward. isn't there? I've got this, I should be happy mm -hmm. like you said, but I'm still thinking about this and I should be That's content right. with my loss. So one of the things that I think is, is really apparent is that importance of, of the openness and, and the honesty and the telling because often children quite like their story. They like to be able to share that they have a story in their little innocent way, don't they? And, mm -hmm. and yes. that obviously positive relationship that they're then going to have, I think, is really essential to point out. And we talked about that concern people have about connection. I had a conversation with a very good friend of mine who now has had successful treatment, but after quite a few rounds of unsuccessful treatment and there was a conversation about using a donor egg she had said that her other half was adamant that that wasn't going to be the way they were going to go there was absolutely no way that he would entertain that idea and so it's something that she didn't even entertain as it happened they had success and they have a babe you know then they're, they're not there's no conversation about going down any further treatment routes for any more children but that imbalance i suppose in a decision making um scenario between a couple mm -hmm. I'm sure is something that you, you've had presented to you have you about mm -hmm. how then that those kind of conversations can develop because you can obviously describe that the, the, the bonds can be created even if it's not a biological link yes absolutely yes that happens and you know sometimes it will 
it will happen before they even decide to move forward with the process, like you mentioned. And, and sometimes there's even a d d disagreement after the child is here. You know, I can think of two different situations and um, where one of the couples was ready to talk about it and the other one wasn't. And so, you know, in both of these cases, it was the sperm donation and it was the father who was very uncertain and not ready to talk about it yet and was struggling with some issues. So what I really see is um, for more attention to the males that have to that have done sperm donation um, to have a child mm. is that, yeah, there's definitely, and research shows that too, that we, we need to really tend to their psychosocial needs a bit more than we are now. There's a lot of hurt there. There's, you know, in one sense, they want to intellectualize it and they're able to, but on another sense, there's the, there are those feelings of, wow, I didn't know it was me, and shame associated with that. The same feelings that women feel when they are in, going through infertility, those feelings of shame or something's wrong with me. And and so, yeah, grieving that process, coming to terms with that process is, I've seen men, um, I've seen men do that and both in my office and after they have a child. It presents in so many different ways. Have you mm -hmm. ever experienced a, a situation that you just that they that can't be resolved are you always in a position where you're able to help people through or is there some sticking points like for example they just won't tell the child have you ever had that mm-hmm mm -hmm. for sure I've had really I've had people yes and what happens is they get very angry with me um and and defensive these are very intense sessions sometimes and um because and I'm very tender with people because I know these are such, you know, you know, life and death really topics and and so, you know, at times I have people that just are too resistant, not able to to come to terms with the telling because they they want to carry on as if it is their own child and and, and mask that and, and pretend that it is. And so, you know, in and that's those are difficult situations, but I also believe that just because they leave my office feeling that way doesn't mean that they're going to feel that way in the next two years or three years. Um, I do tell people, whatever you feel today will likely change. And so, you know, be open and flexible and adaptable to this process because, you know, when your child is here and you're experiencing parenting, really things do, they do change. and You do start to see things in a different way. And so I was like, it's okay. You don't have to know today for sure what you are going to do but that you can just be open to to being open. I suppose one of the things that's really fascinating about the work you do and how you help people is that they can go on the journey with you. And one of the concerns that people might have is once they've overcome the telling of how their families come to be, how do they then deal with things when they might get difficult later on if they have told the child and there are kind of repercussions? There's the whole, as you described, about searching for your, your birth parents or if it's a donor-conceived child, finding out that information, all that comes with it. So what, what kind of um, advice do you offer people as their child you know grows up yeah and so the good news is like from the beginning if you still if you tell from the beginning it's pretty simple because the children it's usually a one-way conversation they don't have many questions and so that's preschool you know baby years through preschool years and then as we get into middle school years you may have a few more questions social about social comparisons and things like that but when you get into the teenage years is when you're probably going to have the most comp um, maybe challenges or questions from your child and that is when I really um, encourage parents to to help their child to see both sides of their story and because while you know it's great we want to paint everything with one you know beautiful picture like it's all wonderful and everything's so positive and wasn't just such a gift 
you were a gift and we're a happy family, but they might have some negative emotions about it. They may have some feelings of loss and grief that they lost a genetic piece that they don't, that they don't know information about who they are. And so that's okay. So the more that you're able to, to, to see both sides of those stories and to look at both sides of this complex, complex issue, that you can teach them to do that too. And what we find is the most advanced level of thinking is something that um, psychologists have termed dialectical thinking. And that's when we really can look at two opposing ideas and we know they can be true at the same time. And so that means, yes, while I did lose a genetic connection, I am here because of this donor. Or yes, maybe this donor, it seems like they're so generous that they gave up their sperm or egg for me to be born, but they also got paid. And so these are two seemingly opposing ideas, but they can be merged and you can kind of almost hold the tension between those two ideas and be okay. And so that's what both adopted children and donor-conceived children can do and learn to do as they go into that more advanced level of thinking into adolescence, into understanding their life and their, their identity and kind of giving it meaning. And so that's kind of, I talk about that in the book a bit as well. It's fascinating stuff. I mean, did you find yourself asking those kind of questions on your... Oh, yes. Yeah, when you were starting to wonder about your birth parents? Oh, yes, absolutely. I went through it myself. And, yeah. you know, I, I remember thinking, where is the silver lining for me? You know, where is... You know, there's loss here and there's sadness and there's grief. Um, but where... What did I gain? What makes me me? Um, and what did this add to my story? And then what can I do to give back, you know, is really the question. And so... Absolutely. I went through that in my own dialectical thinking process as well. Yeah. I think for anybody listening who is thinking about any of the routes we've talked about, knowing what could be, it takes away that mystique and that fear of the un- unknown by having someone like you who's been through it, who's working with people, mapping out what could be. Mm-hmm. It's almost knowing yeah. the what if rather than the than the because that's also part yes. of the, the, the frustrations with infertility is the unknown and mm-hmm. you just never know whether you're going to get that outcome that you desire and so at least you can prepare yourself and you can help yes. manage those expectations of bit more because the what if is usually more scary than the what is you know yeah so or what comes to be the what ifs are so much more scary and fear is part of that whole grieving process it can be part of it thank you i appreciate that thank you so much for your time it's been lovely lovely talking to you and we'll put all the details of all your social media and your website and the book because the book's available on amazon so you can get it wherever you are i've got it on my kindle in front of me so janna (laughs) thank you again i know your dog went a bit crazy then so the dog wants some attention (laughs) 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 and um good luck with the book we're spreading the word um which we're doing right now because it is a really really interesting journey that you've shared of of the different case studies and you do give lots of different examples there's different scenarios of people which again is is really interesting as well as the exercises for people to complete so it's like a practical workbook as well as a guide Mm -hmm. isn't it yes it is that's exactly that's what i wanted it to be i knew i could only do so much in one session with people so i wanted to give them more that they could take home with them and do some work over time. So much to take on board there. And I'm going to put loads of notes for you in the show notes of this episode, which are the fertilitypodcast.com forward slash three to make a baby. Okay. If you are thinking about having a child through donor conception, the exercises that Jana has in her book from what I've seen are just so practical and straightforward and really helpful. So like I say, all the links will be there. I hope this has been useful for you. Always great to know what you think. If you want to email me, natalie at thefertilitypodcast.com. Next time, it's going to be all about the legal side. So lots to consider ahead of journeying into making or completing your family including a third person or doing it in a more unconventional way hopefully i can give you lots more to think about 
Thank you as always for your support. And until the next time, 